Hey everybody. How often do you take the time to acknowledge the feelings of the people around you? Another equally important question, if not in some cases more important, is do you take the time to acknowledge your own feelings? Has anyone ever told you lately that you can be okay even when things around you are not okay? Well, I am glad that you have tuned in today because my guest is going to assure you that you can. Thank you everyone for spending another week with me on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Joining me this week is an expert in organizational design and in development and leadership coaching. Someone who helps individuals and organizations be more adaptive, more creative, and more effective. She's advised leaders and founders at Casper, Google, LinkedIn, Bungalow, and Slack, and is the co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings. My guest today is Molly West Duffy, and she and I are going to talk about her new book, which is coming out later this month, Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Their their point of view is no one's going to want to read about difficult emotions because they're difficult and like that's not a fun thing to read about. Um, and our argument was like, well, we're all going through them anyways. And we as you know, readers really found it helpful to read books about what it feels like to navigate through difficult emotions, again, in, in work or in life. So today we are going to explore topics such as uncertainty, despair, anger, envy. Now, I know that these are topics that aren't necessarily easy to be open about, but today we are going to jump right in. Okay. No need to be scared, however, because you are in good hands with Molly and me as we explore these topics together and how to best deal with them. When we keep everything bottled up, we suffer in silence and we miss the chance to connect with others and to let them support us. In addition, in this episode, you are going to learn how to identify your feelings, how to pinpoint what triggers these feelings and how to communicate them properly and effectively, and how to find balance in your life to prevent things like burnout. You have to allow yourself to do what is reasonable in a week. And if that means rescheduling things or saying no to things, that's what is required. Sound good? Very timely and a very apt episode, I must say. So are you ready? I hope you are because I know that you are going to learn heaps from this episode. Please join me in welcoming to the show, Molly West Duffy. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here again. Welcome to Scale Up and another week, another awesome guest on the show. Today, I am joined by Molly. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. You should have a co-host with you, shouldn't you? A co-author. Yes. My co-author, Liz. We, we wrote the book together. We're going to talk a lot today about well, we're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about organizational design. We're going to talk about people. We're going to talk about feelings predominantly and some of the things that can kind of really really get in the way let's just say that of how people feel how they perform and all that sort of stuff so yeah really looking forward to diving into what could be a whole heap of different areas me too okay so let's kick off with your background so you do you worked at IDEO is that correct I did. I worked at IDEO for five years as an organizational design lead so I led projects thinking about things like culture change um, scaling up leadership development with a whole host of different clients. Right. And how did you get into this from the outset? What was the, what was the fascination with, with leadership development and, and building successful teams and all that sort of thing? 
Yes, absolutely. It's, so it's actually what I studied in university, believe it or not. I studied organizational behavior and the sociology. I'm fascinated by how groups of people come together in a workplace context and interact. And then I did research at Harvard Business School, working for two professors in leadership development. So we did a research study looking at how CEOs of Fortune 500 companies spend their time, like in 15-minute <laughs> right. increments. Oh, no. Yeah. I had someone from uh, McKinsey make me do that once. I literally had to walk around the place. This was before we had phones that like could do all this for you. I had to go around with a bit of paper and fill it in. Exactly. And and in this case, it was more of their their admin who was filling it out because they have their full schedule. But yeah, it was personal time, work time, 15 minute increments. Um, Because the question is, well, what do you do as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company? You know, how do you spend your time? And the answer is that very much how you spend your time is a signal to the rest of the company of what's important. So if you show up to a marketing meeting, that tells the company that that's important. There is a lot of travel. Um, Their schedules are booked out like a year, year and a half in advance um, just because of all the demands. Yeah, absolutely. And what's what's the view from that in terms of, so uh, was there an awareness of of the fact that how they are doing things is having such a bigger organizational impact or was that part of the study to understand that some of them had that awareness or they 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 picked up that awareness as they progressed into the job I, I think part of the study was to help new CEOs understand that that was going to be the case so to understand that that whatever they did was going to be interpreted symbolically and so it was you had to look at it through the lens of like, okay, you know, content wise, what do I need to know and how do I show up to those meetings? But also I need to show up to meetings where maybe I don't need to be there content wise, but I do need to be there symbolically. Yeah. Okay. I get that. I mean, I was the CEO of a couple of private equity back companies for years. And I, someone once said to me that, um, you know, everything you think, act, do, say gives permission for others to do the yes. same. Yes. And, and it really struck me because I thought, yeah, you're right. So if I, if I'm, you know, turning up, as you said, to certain things or I'm favoring one area over the other or, you know, even the way I'm dressing, right? Like, you know, that mm-hmm. says it's a statement of everything that's going on. And I think sometimes, particularly when you're running organizations and the businesses that I were running were sort of in the thousands of employees as opposed to the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But even so, I don't think I had that awareness, right? Not not until it was pointed out to me by a coach, actually. That, you know, Yeah, that you then need to maybe be a bit more considered about everything that's going on, even at the granular level. So, yeah. Yes. And, and very true. And, you know, we'll get into this around emotions, but it's also true. People look longer and harder at how leaders express emotions. What do they express? What don't they express? And so that's another thing is not only are you showing up or not, but what is your facial expression in the room? What are you saying about your emotions? And we want our leaders to be, emotional, but not too emotional. So we don't want you to be a calculating robot and not show any emotions, but if you're showing too much emotion, that is going to destroy trust. And so you, people have to be, walk that line in every single meeting, which you know can be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we're sort of diving in and diving out of the various chapters in this book as we go through this, but I, I like to kind of just talk, right? So, yes. so just to extend what you said then, um, where does vulnerability fit? So you said beforehand being maybe too open can be an issue, but there's this big thing at the moment about being more vulnerable. You know, it seems to be coming a lot more. Where do you stand with that? 
We have a term we like to use called being selectively vulnerable. So it is this idea of, yes, you need to be vulnerable if you have to share something like layoffs, which is a really tough thing to announce, and you don't show any emotion, people are going to say, this person doesn't have any emotions. They don't care about me. They don't care about the company. But if you say something like, I have no idea what to do next. I'm completely scared, which may be how you're feeling. That's also not a good thing to share. So it it, it is walking that line um, between sharing, which builds trust and oversharing, which can destroy trust. Which is the balance, I think, probably a little bit between maybe uh, competency and empathy, right? So if you are, if you're showing a lack of competence, that you know destroys trust. But if you're showing a lack of empathy, that's also the same. So it's probably the line between that, I would imagine, too. Yes, yeah, I like that. Yeah, very good. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about this book that you've written, um, "Big Feelings," and and particularly, I suppose, the context. This book's coming out um, very shortly. What was the rationale behind this particular book? Sure. So Liz and I wrote a book, it was called No Hard Feelings and came out in 2019. And then both of us went through a difficult time in in work and life about a year after that came out. And turns out there are some hard feelings. Um, And so we, (laughs) we wanted to write a book about those difficult emotions. And we actually pitched the idea for the book in January of 2020. So pre-pandemic and the editor said to us, we think that this is too niche of an audience. And then in June of 2020, after the pandemic has started, they came back and they said, well, turns out this is really relevant. Uh, so we would like to buy that book from you. <laughs> so, so the- uh, okay, yeah, let's go into that. So um, why, because of the pandemic and because of so much, uh, I suppose, acute disruption, is that is that the reason why they, they changed their exactly minds? exactly the reason, yes. I mean, you know, I, I love our editor and our publisher, but they, you know, the whole industry tends to be, you know, pretty risk averse. And so their their point of view was no one's going to want to read about difficult emotions because they're difficult and like that's not a fun thing to read about. Um, and our argument was like, well, we're all going through them anyways. And we as you know, readers really found it helpful to read books about what it feels like to navigate through difficult emotions, again, in, in work or in life. Um, and I think once the pandemic started, they were like, okay, well, yes, we are all, we are all going through this now. And so we see an audience for that. (laughs) And it's really interesting because, you know, the publishing timeline is so drawn out that now is the time when books that were written sort of right before the pandemic and the early part of the pandemic are coming out. And there are a lot of books that are about this area. So Susan Cain's new book, it's called bittersweet. It's all about, um, dealing with sadness. Um, Dan Pink wrote a book that's all about regret, which we have a chapter on as well. Yeah, so yeah. It's just interesting. <laughs> We're in a moment of time where I think people are are more interested in in these topics. I think people people right now are just reconsidering themselves, right, and and what's important to them and their values. You know, I work with with companies that are making big, quite seismic changes to the way they work. You know, even down to um, relocating head offices and things like that to where people now want to live or have moved. You know, through the pandemic, usually sunnier places with beaches. To be frank, and mm-hmm. and that's partly as a result of kind of you know people are just reevaluating things, right? You know, and we hear Absolutely. about the, 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 you know, the what's it called the the Great Resignation and and all this sort of stuff as well. But let's um let's dive into a few of the chapters. I'd like to almost go through all of them if we can, but let's sort of summarize that. I know you've you've basically written the book so that each chapter is examining, you know, one specific feeling, one big feeling. 
Um, so you've got uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. That's correct, isn't it? Yep. Okay. So can I pick one? Please. Ah, I'll choose, I'll, let's, let's choose my favorite. Let's, let's do perfectionism. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do it. My Why world is of private equity, <laughs> my world of ego and like, you know, and, and to be frank, I like things to be precise. I use the word precise. Is that the same? That's interesting uh, swap of the word. We could dive into that. Um, Yes, I so perfectionism is something that was when we when we decided what chapters we were going to write about, we did a survey of all of our readers on our newsletter. So about 30,000 people, not everyone responded, but um, and perfectionism was the one that came up the most, actually, out of all of the emotions. Yes. So you're not alone. Um, and, you know, we, we define perfectionism as both an unrealistic drive to be perfect or flawless combined with usually some negative self-talk. So, you know, okay. it's like we can, you know, classic examples on a test, like it's great to strive to get perfect on a test. And if you get a 94% on it, you can feel good about what you've learned. It's another thing if you get a 99% and you still beat yourself up for that last 1%. That is sort of classic perfectionism. The interesting thing is that many of us don't recognize ourselves as perfectionists because I think the way that we talk about it in our culture is color-coded folders and elaborate daily routines. And you're like, well, if I'm not that, I don't obsess about that, then I'm not a perfectionist. But the thing is, perfectionism can show up in really different ways. You can be a perfectionist in one area of your life and not in other areas. And, you know, things like being unable to shut off or when you step away from work or a project, you can't stop thinking about it or creating mental checklists. That's also a sign of perfectionism. Got it. And and to some extent, I suppose, and and I have this belief that you know, the, the, I suppose the strive for perfection is one thing, the actual realization of it is different, right? So, you know, is it yes. actually possible? And then you've got the, um, the concept around that, I suppose, of what is perfect to you is different to me. So therefore what really is perfection? Yes. Yes. You know, that Absolutely. sort of thing. And, and so therefore, you know, if you go a little bit deeper into it, that's a state of mind, right? Which is a very personal, um, I suppose, reflection or observation of that. So, yes. so I suppose the outcome is, you know, back to feelings and I suppose the subject line of the book about, you know, being okay when you may not be feeling okay. H- how do you deal with that? What, what's the, you know, if you have that going on and you, and you feel that, what, what's the solution if there is one, you know, how do you work through it? Yes. Yeah. So I think some of us high achievers, the reason that we are, we allow ourselves to continue to think this way is that we believe that it serves us. And in many ways it has probably served us. It has helped us accomplish a lot of important things in our, in our lives, especially in our work lives. Um, but I, I think that what we don't realize is that our success may be in spite of that drive for being flawless, not because of this. Um, so our success is often due to our energy, our talent, our commitment. And that if we let go of that desire to be perfect, those things won't go away. So we have this fear of like, if we let go of that drive to be perfect, we will turn into a couch potato. 
And we don't want to turn into that. Lazy or something like that. Exactly. So it's this very (laughs) black and white thinking of like, well, I have to drive for perfect. Otherwise I would be a complete failure, which is in of itself, you know, that's the perfectionism talking. So, but actually the the research shows that, that cutting ourselves some slack can make us more likely to improve because we will uh, be less obsessive over things that maybe don't matter as much as we think that they matter. We will be kinder to ourselves. We will be less likely to burn out. What's the, um, I mean, it's fascinating this, and, and I'm, I want to understand a little bit the organizational view as well. So, because you get particularly, and you know, you've worked with a lot of startups and, and companies that have got some pretty decent brand names to them. There sometimes is a culture within organizations to support, recognize, reward that type of activity. Is that, have you, have you seen a shift particularly through the last couple of years? Definitely during COVID, we have seen a shift to understanding that if we only reward people who are pushing themselves, then people are going to burn out. And that's the last thing that an organization wants is people burning out and potentially leaving the organization either for a time or uh, permanently. So I think I've seen in an organizational culture context, like some, some organizations use Slack as, or other you know, messaging platforms and some of them have a channel where they give out kudos. And previously, you know, it was like, okay, this person, you know, stayed up until 4 a.m. Thank you for doing that. This person went above and beyond. You know, it's, it's all about the recognition of like going beyond 100%. And organizations have been having deep conversations about like, is that really what we want to publicly celebrate and recognize? Because that's not a healthy thing. Now, I think it's it's a harder shift to make than we realize because it goes so deep. Um and I think even when the organization is no longer pushing for it or only celebrating that, it's so embedded in us as workers that we still are like, well, I still need to do that, even if the organization's saying that I don't need to. Well, there's 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 actual and subliminal, isn't there? Right. Yeah. So there's because I because I think about it um, back to my <laughs> going back a little bit when I was in the private equity world, like fully. But there was a bit of lip service that was paid sometimes towards the stuff that would come from a a HR side of thinking versus a financial slash performance side of thinking, right? And I'm not saying yeah. that those things should be directly opposed at all. In fact, they should be aligned. However, there was a bit like, uh, you know, well, the numbers are more important than performance is important. So we want people who are pushing at 120 reps per minute, blah, 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 versus, oh, you know, you know slow down to speed up. It's, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm just curious, particularly just to, to push the point, yeah. Are CEOs, leaders within businesses starting to become more appreciative that performance can come from a different way of approaching things? Or is that still something that's a bit of a battle, do you think? I think it's still a bit of a battle. I think it depends on the CEO. It depends on the company and the industry. So you yes. mentioned in private equity. I mean, I don't know that that industry has shifted, but I do think that um, in areas, you know, healthcare context, education context, where we're seeing just like, incredible amounts of burnout. I do think that those leaders are waking up to this fact and thinking about how do we structure our organizations differently, compensate people differently, um, provide different breaks. I think there are lots of examples of, you know, startups that we see are like, okay, we're going to give people a full week, everyone in the company a full week off or mental health week. Um, and I think those are still, uh, 
the one-offs, but I think that they are getting press and attention. Um, and I just, you know, I had a conversation the other day with some leaders about like, what are small acts that we can do when people are not putting it upon themselves to take, you know, shorter days or to take vacations. I, I think it does have to come down to the company collectively shutting off or saying, we're not going to work Friday afternoons or whatever it is, because in those cultures where people don't feel permission to do that on their own, it has to be something that we do as the collective to give people that permission. So they're not like, well, you know, Jane is actually working 20 hours a day. So even though you're telling me that I can only work, you know, I should only work eight <laughs> hours a day, I'm still going to do that. But it's like, no, no one is doing that. Then that's actually when we can shut off. Yeah. And it comes back to how we started this conversation about everything the CEO does, says, feels, turns up to, you know, shows or demonstrates what actually really is going on, even if it may not be said. So, you know, I, yeah. I glanced over recently and I believe it was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, you know, was saying he expects everyone to be coming back into, into yep. offices. And I saw this, um, someone posted about it in one of my social networks and you should have seen the divide between the comments. Mm. Cause like there were some people actually going, well, you know, he's going to lose all of his staff, all this sort of stuff. And there were some people saying, well, hold on. These people signed up to a contract to often do work, and and it wasn't like it was very very sort of even actually in in the way that it was done. But fascinating. Well, let's let's go into um, let's talk about burnout now because we've we've touched sure. on it as well because yes. there is obviously a part of that. There's overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. How, how do you how do you approach that? Because again, is it is it that because we've had such an interesting two or three years? people not having to get on a, a, a train or a tube for hours per day to get into to work. And actually it's quite nice to sit in the garden and do a Zoom call, even though people get Zoom fatigue and all that. Is there a part of this which is people have just relaxed a bit more and now they like it? So burning out potentially is they're going to burn out because they haven't had to do the same things they've had to do previously for years. Or is it different? So I think that on the one hand, working remotely has given a lot more flexibility and that's what people don't want to give up. So the Goldman Sachs example, like people are like, well, I now have experienced this and I don't want to give up having to come into the office. Even, you know, even three days a week, people feel is feels like a lot right now. But there's really great research that came out of Microsoft um, in the middle of the pandemic that says that actually working remotely, we are working longer hours. We are working more into the evenings, we are working on the weekends, and we have more meetings throughout the day. And as soon as you go back, and I've, you know, I've gone into some workspaces recently, and you just remember, you're like, oh yeah, like all of these breaks were built into the day, going into the kitchen, chatting with people as we walk by, the, and, and all of those are gone. So I, mm, it, okay. this, it's, it's this conundrum of like, how do we give people flexibility, but also help them understand that returning to the office does help you build breaks into your day and like getting that balance right. And, and how, how do you do that? Not so much the, the point you made about the office, but if I am home and I'm working and it's back-to-back -back meetings and you're right, you know, I've seen this as well with some of the companies I have of people doing this, they're working longer. Partly, you know, maybe it's about guilt a little bit that I'm sort of here at home. So therefore I have to be showing that I'm working more, right? Versus being more intentional about, well, actually you've got to take more control of the stuff that you would have done in the office. Breaks, you know, work 50 minutes, have 10 minutes off, whatever that is. Do you have any recommendations around that for people who are maybe right in the middle of that feeling burnt out right now? Yeah, 
Yeah, um, I do. And I think for people who are feeling burnt out right now, and we talk about this in the book, I think the most important thing to understand is that it is a very slippery slope towards burnout and it takes a long time to recover from burnout. And so we don't often pick up on those warning signs until it is too late. And we're like, I need to take, you know, extended period away from my work because I'm just really suffering mental or physical health from this. And the reason that we don't pick up on that is that burnout makes us, it's this sort of insidious thing where we're riding high on adrenaline. And as you said, like we feel good, but as soon as that adrenaline goes away, we crash. And so it it's hard to pick up on the thing. So what to do about it? Well, what, before we get into what to do about it, which was obviously my question, but let, let's, cause you mentioned it, let's talk about the signs before we get yes. into what you do. So what are some of the, the first signs that you would see that, that you are burning out? Cause you may not recognize it or you may not want to recognize it. Yes, exactly. So some of the early signs are things like basic activities start to feel overwhelming. Mm. Um, So, you know, like going to the grocery store, it's like, or, you know, uh, paying our bills. It's like, oh, I I have so much to do on my list that I can't even get to that. And, you know, I've had this happen before. We're so busy during the week and then we push everything else to the weekend and then we're exhausted on the weekend. And it's like, well, I can't deal with all of this other life stuff that I have to do. Um, or you feel so overwhelmed that you started cutting out activities that you know are good for you. Classic example is exercise, but even like, you know, not seeing friends, alone time, um, feeling like you're irritated by everything and everyone. Um, and then this one, I feel like is if you're listening and you hear this, it's a big sign. Getting sick and being forced to shut down kind of sounds nice. You're like, oh, Ooh. like that would be great. <laughs> I've been here. I, it wasn't yes. during the pandemic, but I just you're taking me back about seven or eight years, Molly. <laughs> and um, and actually, another word came to mind. It was where you've got burnout was partly the overwhelm comments. The fact that even one more thing added to the list, like, can you go and mail this letter? <laughs> no, don't add anything else to the list. Right? Yes. How dare you ask me to do that? I mean, Liz tells the story where her partner asked her to put like a calendar invite on their shared calendar for a like date that they were going to have with some friends. And she was like, she blew up at him. She was like, oh, wow. How dare you ask me? And she was like, oh, my goodness. You know, that's a big sign. There you go. I think a lot of people are experiencing that. I've heard that more often. I've heard it for a long time in my world, my profession, but I think specifically now, because a lot of people just are rushing rush, 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 from whatever thing. And, and I know a lot of people who don't put any time in between their meetings, you know, they don't even have the sort of 10, 15 minutes just to have a break. There's bang, 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 bang. So, okay. Very useful. Let's, let's talk now about what you do about it. So if you have got any of those symptoms, (laughs) (laughs) what, 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 what what should you do? What what are some of the, the different strategies or tactics that people can adopt? Okay, so I'm going to talk like immediate short term and then yep. we'll talk about long breathing okay. is good. <laughs> yes, breathing is good. Um, okay, so immediate short term. For many of us, our lives are dictated by our calendars. And so that is the easiest way in to making a change. So what I do is at the beginning of the week, usually on Sunday night, I look at what is on my calendar and I, and I look at the days where I am in those back-to-back meetings and I say, I cannot do that to myself. That is not being kind to myself. And I say, what do I need to cancel or move or push back? 
And this has to be a ritual that happens every week because you can be really good one week and then the next week things are totally piled up. And it does feel a little bit Sisyphusian where you're like, okay, well, I, I'm going to you know keep pushing things off, but that's fine. I mean, you're not pushing the same thing off, but like you have to allow yourself to do what is reasonable in a week. And if that means rescheduling things or saying no to things, that's what it's required. It requires making trade-offs. So no one is going to draw your lines for you. And this is a really hard part of being an adult is we want our boss, our spouse, our friend, our colleague to draw our lines and be like, that looks like a really busy day. You should say no to that meeting. No one's going to do that for you, unfortunately. And so we have to do this for ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves and being really clear about that. Um, You can also draw rules for yourself. So Liz always says, it's easier for me to say no to things because I say, I don't do things after work two nights a week. That's what I've learned about myself. And so then you're not being saying no personally, you're saying like, sorry, I don't do things on Monday night. Or she has a rule where she says to herself, I don't say yes to big things. Like, you know, we go do a book event. I always sleep on it to decide if that's actually something that I want to do or not. Um, so building in those, those rules for yourself, those are the, the immediate action items. Okay. That's, that's, that's fascinating. And and do you recommend then? So if you, if people, cause sometimes people don't either have the confidence or the discipline to, to take that control. Like, you know, so I know, for example, with people who've got PAs who manage people's diaries or whatever else, and then suddenly a day gets full of stuff. And do you recommend if someone let's say someone does look at their diary on a Sunday night and they see a couple of days and, and, they, and they literally, their whole energy drops when they see that day. <laughs> like, well, you know that, right? That feeling. Yeah. Do you recommend that people take action on that and, and, and go into that and say, okay, I'm now going to make the day really good. Something I enjoy leaning into and doing, or is there also a bit of a, well, some days are just like that. Right. But if you have too many of those days, <laughs> that's when it's going to lead to this, this burnout, this overwhelm. Yeah. I mean, we can't a hundred percent, we can't do it for a hundred percent, but I do think that when I look at my week and I see a couple days like that, if I say like, Oh, my Tuesday and Wednesday are totally up. I say, I can't, I have learned this the hard way. And I get to the end of the day, um, especially the Wednesday after two days of that. And I feel terrible. And that is when I start burning out. And I say, I cannot keep doing this to myself. I have learned this too many times. And so you said the word discipline. I think that's exactly it. I think it is, it is the discipline of, you know, it's, it's easy to just let it aside and be like, okay, well, that's tomorrow. I'll deal with that tomorrow. But again, like no one else is going to be taking care of you. You have to do that for yourself. And if you yep. do that too many times, you do burn out. And then that's, I think we, we think like, I mean, the consequences of burnout and I've been there. I had, there was a period of time after our book came out where I was working and trying to do book events and dealing with some health stuff. And it was just like, and I had to, it was really painful what came after that because I had to say to Liz, I can't do book events anymore. You're going to have to do them. So it's like in the, the short-term consequences of moving a couple meetings or saying no to things pale in comparison to what will happen when you move really into that burnout territory and you say, I can't do any of this. So you, are you saying that, that, that you reached that point? I, I did reach that point. I did. And I had to really restructure my life. Um, and so that's when we can move into the sort of long-term thing, which was 
was living in New York at the time. And New York is a city that really uh, encourages burnout. Um, And, (laughs) and I, and I said, I can't, I can't live in a space that is like this. And so we moved to Los Angeles. I mean, there's a couple other reasons, but that was a big reason. I said, I said, I need to be in an environment that doesn't um, make me feel like I need to run at 150%. Um, I, as I mentioned, I had to say no to book events for a couple of months and Liz was very generous and she took those on. Um, I had to invest in my life outside of work and book and, um, make connections with people that were in, in social ways. Um, and I, and I had to say no to a bunch of side projects that I had taken on, um, and just, you know, and, and I think the thing that I learned from that was I could have done a bunch of this stuff before I burned out, but it, I, it, I wasn't forced to. And so what are the things that you can do beforehand? So in the book, we talk about getting comfortable living at 80%. So again, for many of us high achievers, we like to fill our lives up to about a hundred percent, maybe even like 110% where it's like, oh, I have a little extra time. Great. Let me take on, you know, be on a committee or something like that, or take on a side (laughs) project. But then when things happen in life, and we've seen this happen with COVID, people get sick. Um, You know, someone else in your organization quits and suddenly you go from like a hundred to 125% and your life becomes a nightmare. And so <laughs> I can I can sense I can sense a lot of personal experience <laughs> oh, yeah. here. I, I wanted if you, if you don't mind, and any question I ask you, you can say I don't want yeah. to answer that because I'm you know in this in this year I'm Australian I get to ask direct questions. What what was what was Molly West Duffy like? Because you've obviously gone through your own transition here, right? Which I, I sense yeah. there's a lot of personal stuff in both books from what you said from the outset. But what happened to you prior to that? that you were so driven, so focused, obviously so successful, but it obviously had its costs. I just like to understand yeah. a little bit more of yeah, that, that journey. Great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I think that it was a, a uh, wanting to say yes to opportunities because they sounded fun and they felt good to say yes to without understanding that every yes is a trade-off. Every yes is, Mm. you know, adding something. So, you know, it was like, I was working in IDEO. I loved my job. I was asked to do a project where I was traveling to a different city every week for three months. And there was part of me that was like, it's going to be a lot, but there's also like, well, this is a great opportunity. And like, you know, this will lead towards promotion. So let me say yes to that. I would, I've loved writing. I would love to write a book. Um, you know, I, I can fit this in while working full time. No problem. Um, and that was true. And then the book came out and what, what was expected of us was much more. I got sick and I talked about this in the book. I got sick for two weeks and then it turned it in, turned into a longer health thing. And I was just, I felt like I couldn't get off the train that I had built for myself. Mm. There was no exit ramp. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think it's like all of these things were things that I liked doing. And we talked about this as well. Like some people burn out because we talked about this before with private equity, Mm -hmm. where it's like, well, the expectations from the organization are insane. And so that's like a really clear, like, I don't want to be doing this, but I feel like I need to be doing this. But for me, burnout was, I wanted to be doing all of it, but I couldn't do it all. And I needed to say no to some things. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, people know my story because I've shared it many a time on this show and other shows, but I had a massive burnout and breakdown because what it came down to, and I can, I can sense a little bit of this and how you describe that situation for you is the way you act and the way you show up becomes a huge part of your identity. Yes. Right. And, and, and it's the expectation you have of yourself and therefore the expectation that you think others have of you. Right. And, and then you become fearful and scared that if you, if you let any of that go, like you break the veneer or jump off the, the treadmill, as you said, then, you know, you kind of lose yourself. Yes. Right. And so you have to therefore recreate yourself. <laughs> All right. And what did that look like for you? Well, it, it culminated in me breaking the teeth in the right side of my jaw one night. Oh my goodness. From stress of closing a couple of big deals and a few other personal things going on in my life as well and uh, physical manifestation. But the interesting thing about it is if I look back in hindsight, there were physical signs weeks, months before that incident. And, yeah. and then I had to quit everything. I literally had to quit the, well, when I say quit everything, I took what I learned from the private equity turnaround and scale up world. And I took it in a different direction. So I didn't give away my experience and my competence or what I love doing, but I changed the terms of how I would do it. So, mm. but I had to, because I, yes. if I didn't, I was going to be you know, dead or whatever, <laughs> not, <laughs> not to be too dramatic about it, but, but like, you know, breaking your teeth is not a good thing. And I didn't have any conscious, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's just how my body began to shut down because of the stress. Yes. And I'm so glad you, you brought that up because we talk about in the book, the physical signs too. And I think in our society, we, there, we do feel like there's a divide between mental and, and physical health sometimes. And so we can mm, write yeah. off a lot of those physical signs. It's like, well, that was, that's just due because I was over-exercising. Um, but yes, then you have something big happen like this. For me, it was, you know, basically being on the couch and I just, my body was so drained. I couldn't recover from a cold and then the flu. So I was basically sick for like a month. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I really have to pay attention to this. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I feel like these stories are good examples and yet it still is hard. I mean, I'm sure for listeners listening right now, it's like, okay, like, yes, I hear your story, Nick and Molly, but you know, I'm <laughs> going to be different. Um, and so, you know, maybe some of this is like, you just have to experience it, but I would say that I, I wish that I had been able to make some of those smaller changes in restructuring before it happened, because it's a really tough thing to go through. Oh, it is. And, and I think, you know, you're right what you said. Sometimes you do have to go through it because, yeah. you know, not, not to wish pain or challenge on anyone, but, you know, the idea that you make the biggest changes in your life when you experience either pain or pleasure, right? So it's normally that, that point of mediocrity in the middle where you just don't do anything. It's not, it's not that bad. It's not that great. So I'm just going to be in the middle until something happens. Right. So, so I look back at that incident and I'm sure you probably look back at yours. You, you, know, you wish you didn't have to go through it, but at the same time, it gave you a level of awareness that you might not have got had you have gone through that. Yes, absolutely. Cool. This is a good book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm just, I enjoying talking to you about it. We have one, we've got time for one more, I think, before, okay. um, before we finish things up. So let's talk about, because there's, there's lots of good ones here, but I like uncertainty. I think I like uncertainty. <laughs> so let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about that, particularly now that the world feels very uncertain as we 
record this, we've got wars going on and all sorts of crazy things like that. So things seem to have really shifted in the last two or three years. Yes. What's, what's your view on this? You know, is it this, do we just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable now? Is that, is that the line? What is it? <laughs> I think that that is part of the line. I think it, for us, it was helpful to just understand what's going on when we are experiencing this radical period of uncertainty. So we talk about the difference between anxiety and fear and anxiety mm -hmm. is about having a bunch of different possible outcomes. So this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. We're anxious about, are any of those things going to happen? Which of them are going to happen? Fear is when we believe that something specific will happen. Like I am afraid of giving a presentation and tripping over my words or someone that we love dying. And the thing that's interesting is that both are really difficult, but fear can be easier to deal with because it is specific. Whereas anxiety, the thing that's really tricky about it is that it's not specific. And so translating some of your generalized anxiety into specific fear can be helpful of saying, you know, the, the classic question is, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Or what's the most likely thing that will happen? And then thinking through that can be helpful. But yes, I mean, I think generally we have this illusion that certainty is attainable and that was never true. And we're just more aware of it now. Um, I think also understanding that anxiety doesn't always accurately reflect the risk. So there's a really interesting research study where they, they had two groups of people, one group of people, they said, there's a 99% chance that you will receive a very painful, but safe electric shock. I don't know why research studies always deal with electric shocks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then the other group, they said, you have a 1% chance of receiving the shock. And the two groups were willing to pay the same amount of money, the fake money to avoid getting the shock. So the likelihood, the 1% versus 99% chance didn't change it at all. They still wanted to avoid the scenario. And I, that's just, you know, that's how our brains are designed. I, I sometimes think the 1% is is worse because yes. there's a point where like you can build yourself, you know, I, I do a lot of um, marathons and ultra marathons and I know it's, it's, I'm 99% sure actually I'm hundred and whatever percent sure it's going to be painful because <laughs> it is. Um, so the, that. Yeah. So exactly. So therefore you, yeah, you, you, you get your mindset around that. You get your mindset that it's going to be challenging and I'm just going to do it. Right. And you kind of really go for it. But the 1%, the, the chance that, is it going to be this one? Is it going to be this one? Is it? That one, right? Like that, that to me, even thinking about that creates anxiety. Yes. Strange, yes. isn't it? When you think about it, like it's very it's, strange. Yeah. It's a really nice, it's a, well, it's a really interesting way of, of testing that. And I can see why the outcome is what it is, but to, but to go back to your definitions, cause I haven't heard it expressed that way. Just, I want to talk about anxiety for a second. So is, is anxiety something that because it's not specific, it just can build up and consume you? Right. Like the point, like, cause, cause, because like, you know, with fear, if you know, you're fear, uh, scared of something, let's say, and you know what it is, you can contextualize it. As you said, you can break it down, build it up, whatever that is. But if it's all these things that are happening and building and building, and I can't find, I can't even see it. I'm so clouded. Yes. Like, is, is that what you mean? 
Yes, exactly. Right. So the you get on a, an anxiety spiral where it's like this thing could happen and then your thought is interrupted. Well, this other thing could also happen. And let me think about that for a second and then like, oh, okay. keep going with that. And that causes, as we talked about before, physical reactions in our body that being in a, a state of, you know, a lot of times we move into a state of um, anxiety and stress that's the fight or flight mentality. And we don't realize that anxiety is pushing us into that state and, and being in that state for long periods of time is when we tend to have, you know, bad ramifications to our mental and, and physical health. So versus fear, fear is usually around loss. So we are afraid of losing something and that could be a part of our identity or our health or our job or, you know, something like, that that is a deep um and so thinking about taking those fears so translating your anxiety into specific fears and then saying what is that fear about is it about losing something or is it about you know experiencing some sort of uncomfortable emotion and surfacing the stories that you're telling yourself so what am i telling myself that i'm afraid of what do i imagine could happen what would each of those scenarios look and feel like um, and you know, a lot of people do journaling about this or talk yeah. in therapy about this. Um, you know, and, and look, I mean, we're still going to be anxious about things. Every time I have to make a big decision, I get anxious about things, but I know now how to deal with some of my anxiety to make them into more specific things that I can more easily digest. There's definitely, um, value I find in if, if something is causing anxiety for me, working out the likelihood of a, let's call it a negative outcome versus mm -hmm. nothing happening versus a positive outcome. And as you said, journaling, I, I do a lot of it through podcasting, actually. I mean, I talk, Interesting. I, yeah. Well, when I started this show, uh, what, three years ago, four years ago now, I the first 25 episodes is me. It's almost <laughs> like self-therapy into a mic. I didn't interview anyone. Like it was just me telling my war stories of private equity and it was cathartic. It really was. Right. <laughs> well, even, I mean, even in conversation, I think we can have those moments because, you know, as you and I are in dialogue, it's like, Oh, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way or, you know, sharing some of our stories and, and you know, it's, it's in a way that's what therapy does too, but yeah, I agree. And, and I think that also just understanding that other people are going through the same thing and having those conversations. Yeah, indeed. Well, as we're talking, so we haven't covered all the, all the various points that you make in the various chapters in the book, but I'm getting a sense that there is a link or a compounding of the different emotions that you talk about. Cause like, as we yes. were saying, we could have easily gone in from, you know, burnout leading towards anger to despair, for example, regrets, you know, it, it, there is that piece. So do you find that, is there a piece where there's a bit of a spiral here? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, okay. I think especially with the three that you covered. So anger can be sort of, I mean, any of these things can make us angry, but anger can be a sort of a different thing. Regret is actually its own, you know, interesting journey, but, but these three, um, I think can build on each other. And, and it was hard for us to sort of figure out where does one stop and where does one end? But I think the point is like, the more that we can recognize and be specific, we, we talk about this thing called emotional granularity, which is instead of just saying to yourself or to someone else, I'm feeling stressed. Okay, well, that doesn't really give us a lot of granularity about what's going on there and how to solve it. 
but the more granular we can be, I am feeling a lot of fear around this, or I'm feeling anxiety around this, or I'm uh, even within burnout, we talk about in the book, there's different types of burnout, feeling overwhelmed, feeling disconnected. The more specific you can be, then that's when you can get into the, okay, what am I going to do about it? Or, Or asking people for help with what to do about it. Versus if we leave it at that level of, eh, I'm dealing with a lot of uncertainty right now, or I'm dealing with burnout right now, or stress, that's when it starts to like bleed over into other things because we haven't honed in on, oh, it's this thing, and let me deal with that. Versus like it's a generalized thing and I haven't been able to deal with it. And then it starts overlapping and pushing into other emotions. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And and I talk a lot about the speed of change or the pace of change accelerating, not just because of digital, just because of lots of things going on, right? And and that can create, because we, we may be um, used to operating at a certain cadence, and then all of a sudden that shifts and changes, yeah. creates that. I now need to think about this differently. And then, and then you know, it really this starts to affect you across a lot of the, I mean, I've definitely experienced some of them more than others as I, as I look through here again but all of them, of course, as we are, as yeah. we are humans. Um, but definitely for me, just to sort of finish this in, in the context of work professionally, definitely perfectionism, definitely burnout, um, comparison and uncertainty. They, they would be the four that, that definitely come out. The others are there, but, you know, having to compare yourself to others, there was a point in my life where I had to be the guy the whole time and I would have just stepped on everyone <laughs> to kind of get to the top. So, so I think it's fascinating. And, what I'm going to say to people listening to this is, you know, as the subtitle of the book says, you know, how to be okay when things are not okay. You know, there's nothing wrong, right, with kind of just experimenting and exploring and just sort of sensing what's going on. Better to get on top of it from the experiences I've had and as Molly shared today and, 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 and understand that as opposed to kind of trying to push it away somewhere and letting it fester in my perspective, yes, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. I, I agree. And I think because we don't talk about this as often, we feel that we're unique and that we're the only ones experiencing, you know, despair or comparison and that our feelings are more intense and volatile than other people's. And so we just need to put them under the rug. Um, and so when we keep everything bottled up, we suffer in silence and we miss the chance to connect with others and to let them support us. Yeah, very well said. Well, I think we'll wrap that up. You've been very generous with your time. We Thank could have gone you. on for a lot longer into this. Like mm-hmm. I, get, I get a little bit kind of geeky about these things and start going very deep, but we'll, we'll, we'll park it there for today. Um, Molly Westoff, it's been fantastic having you on the show. When is the book coming out? April 26th. April 26th from all good bookstores. We'll put links into uh, into the show notes for you as well. So the book is called Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay by Molly Westuffy and your co-author, is it Liz Foslian? Yep. Got it right, haven't exactly. I? Okay, perfect. And I know you've got a big Instagram as well and all that stuff. Do you want to um, share where people can find you, get in touch with you if they've got further questions, comments, or just want to say thank you for uh, yes. sharing this today? Thank you. Yes, you can find us on Instagram. We are at Liz and Molly and it's M-O-L-L-I-E. We're also at Liz and Molly on Twitter and our website is LizandMolly.com. There you go. Well, listen, it has been awesome, Molly, having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Great, great topic, timely topic. And I know this sort of stuff helps a lot of my listeners. So very grateful for you coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. 
If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.